0: Hi, you're listening to ArtRant, my silly art history podcast where I take you on the journey across art history. I'm your host, Lana, a passionate art lover who knows way too many random absurd facts about art. Every episode, we are going to depth discussing a particular artist or a painting or a whole art movement. The idea is that the next time you go into the art gallery, you're going to know a bit more about art pieces there and maybe it will help you connect with them. For me, it works that way. When I know the story behind the canvas, it keeps me on my toes with fascination, looking for every detail and every brushstroke. Because art is not only about pretty pictures after all. There is so much more to it. There is certain aesthetic in art, and I'm gonna try and show it. Tag along if you want to widen your art history horizons and have some good nerdy time. So, welcome back! Admittedly, it was quite a long break. Burning out, family troubles and trying to balance work and university didn't reflect too well on my passion project. But that's no reason to abandon it. Our trend is back. We will see on its regularity, but I'm quite determined to revive it again. I'm sorry I was absent for so long, especially missing our Trend anniversary in September. I'm very grateful to everybody who listens to my Lil Art History podcast and all the people who supported me along the way. If you're still listening, it means the absolute world to me. So thank you. Okay, done with the cheesy part, on with the educational part. We are still here to go crazy over art, aren't we? We are not going to pick it up where we left it. Even though there is still a lot to be said about Russian art, I'm going to leave it for some future episode. Today, we are coming back to the basics, to the very core of the art world. What did every artist who wanted to achieve any success absolutely had to do up until the 20th century? Of course, go to the Academy of Fine Arts, preferably French or Italian one. Later, the title of the artist was giving away a bit more frivolously, although it is up for the debate. We often mention how later artists rebelled against the Academy and denied its ideals, but what were these ideals? How did Academy originate? What is Academism? And why was it also a kind of a rebellion? How is it connected with the decadence of the late Roman Empire? And finally, how did Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema earn his title? Answers to all of these questions and much more you're going to learn in this episode. So keep listening. More than anything, I want to talk today about the skill and the lavishness of the old masters. The painting as it is, the very essence of the visual art. We all know how much I love oil on canvas, especially the brass strokes. So, how did the art as we know it begin? Talking, of course, about the academy. Well, as no surprise to anybody, it was in Florence in 1563 that the very first art academy was created by the Medici family under the influence of Giorgio Vasari. All very important names in the history of art. The Medici family as the ultimate patron of the Florentine artist at the time, and Giorgio Vasari as the renowned architect and the first ever person to write an actual art history book. It was a collection of artist biographies. Then, in the mid-17th century, the Art Academy in France was founded. The one that would later become our beloved Académie de Beaux-Arts. The point was that now, there was a clear distinction between the artist as in gentleman practicing liberal arts and the artist as in craftsman engaged in manual labor. The certain question arises, does then intellect equal art? Or does art equal intellect? Does it mean that only true gentlemen could create it? A certain elitist idea of art creation, isn't it? Well. It's all up for the discussion. Of course, art existed way before the 16th century, from the dawn of humanity. But now, now it was regulated. There were rules set by one institution in the country. Artists had to finish four years of training, drawing and painting nudes. The basic building block of academic art, anatomy. Even here, students were allowed to draw and paint from real nudes, only after they mastered doing so from sculptures and plasters and, of course, copying the old masters. There was also a strict genres hierarchy, with the historic paintings at the very top and the landscapes at the bottom. Their love for historical, mythological or religious themes was, as we know, great. That's academic art for you. Now, academism. Academism, in its own instance, is the artistic movement that originated in the 19th century and takes academic standards, plus ideals of neoclassicism and romanticism, as its foundation. It simply put, elaborate paintings of beautiful people in the classical settings, bathing in the sun of the long-gone empires. What more could you possibly want? Funnily enough, it was also kind of a reaction to abstract and impressionistic styles of the time. It was an attempt to revive the values and traditions of the classical art which were dying out. The last grasp of air of the classical, academic, idealistic world which was coming to an end. And I want to put the accent on it here. There is no doubt that it was a time for art to change. Realism was coming into picture. All the horrors of existence were now put on the canvas for the public to look at. Impressionism with its longing for color and light and my favorite kind of brushstrokes. New styles, new ways of painting, new mediums of art. All incredibly important. But I just want to point out that just because academic art didn't have that much weight or authority as it once did anymore, it was not easy to turn away from it completely. It was a mechanism with well-oiled wheels and it worked. It ruled over chaos and it had a great impact on art for a long, long time. If we are talking about Académie de Beaux-Arts, it organized salons annual or biannual art exhibitions, open to everyone and free of charge. It did look very much different from our today's art galleries. Paintings were hanging from the ceiling to the floor, completely covering the walls, and here its position was showing achievements of its creator. The higher the painting, the less successful is the author, as nobody will see it up there. Visitors could buy a catalogue if they wanted to know the artist. This created a certain division of the public. People who just came to look and people who actually wanted to know. Or the poor and the rich, to put it simply. (music) Salons were incredibly interesting events. As everyone could come there, it was quite a diverse group where the higher classes met the low. It was a crowd. Another place like this one might think of is a church. But this was a secular place. Academy was not connected with religious institutions, which was also a great difference from the past art. Before, art was quite closely related to the church and its ideas. Now, not so much. Also interesting to notice that with the start of the salons, such important figure as an art critic came to the stage. Art history as a certain field of study started to find its footing, which is immensely important. As everybody could come and look, people started to judge, which says a thing or two about human nature, I guess. Critical texts and articles were written and the figure of the artist was important as ever. This text allow us to look at the art world of the past through the eyes of its contemporaries. It's almost like we're just putting on glasses to see how they saw it. To know what people of the past thought and felt about a particular piece of art, piece of art which is still there and we can go and look at it, connect to the past almost directly is absolutely mind-blowing, and one of those things which remind me why I'm utterly in love with my degree. Apart from anything else, these salons were meant to give the viewers not only ideological or political propaganda, which you can't really escape, but also aesthetic enjoyment. Today I want to talk about art as not representation of reality, as not a political tool, as not a statement, but art as complete and utter beauty and Polishness which revels in it, idealism as opposed to realism. Maybe it's a bit of an old-fashioned approach, I agree, but I believe coming from a young art historian, (laughs) to be, it can possibly bring some new perspective. I think there should be something said about pure and utter enjoyment of art. (music) Going through materials for this episode, I stumbled across the idea of aesthetic Hedonism and I want to talk about it with William Adolphe Bougarros, Dante and Virgil in Hell of 1850 as an example. Aesthetic Hedonism is a philosophical idea, according to which for an object to be beautiful is for it to create pleasure. I like hedonism as a whole, as an idea. There is something so meaningful in living this life for pleasure than anything else. In a way, it gives you a certain power over this unfair world. There are certain pleasures which just can't be taken away from you. And one of them is art. In aesthetic hedonism, there are two kinds of pleasure. Pure and mixed. The tragic love story can still be beautiful even if you cry over it. There is still enjoyment in it. We all know those book reviews. This book shattered my heart into a million pieces. I cried my eyes out and I enjoyed every single bit of it. You have to read it. It's true though, been there, done that. That can be called mixed pleasure. Now, pure pleasure is the enjoyment of the utter beauty without suffering. For example, Bougarose, Dante and Virgil in Hell. Without going into too much detail of the plot here, this painting depicts a scene from Dante's Divine Comedy, which narrates a journey through hell by Dante and his guide Virgil. In this particular scene, the author and his guide are looking at the two damn souls, who are entwined into internal combat. And entwined indeed they are. The first time I saw this painting, I genuinely thought it was some kind of an erotic scene. Here there is a pure enjoyment in the depiction of the human flesh. We see two naked male bodies in the most unnatural poses fighting each other. The details and the highlights, the whole impression of thirst and hunger is captivating. The skill of the artist, the ability to depict bodies not only accurately to their anatomical structures but to the movement, to the emotion, to the pure visual delight the grabbing of the hair, the rip of the skin, the tense muscles, everything transcendence emotion. I think you can stand in front of this painting for hours, taking in each small detail and I really plan on doing so once I get to Paris. This is not a realistic painting, it doesn't criticize the political system, it isn't trying to invent something. In fact, it was painted for Prix de Rome, scholarship for artists to stay and work in Rome, and somehow it lost. Maybe in a certain sense, it's art for the sake of art, for the sake of beauty and enjoyment, for the sake of the skill. This is aesthetic hedonism. Now, I want to talk about another incredibly skillful artist, one of the wealthiest and most celebrated in the Victorian England. Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema. Judging from his paintings, one might think that he was born somewhere on the sunny islands of Greece when Sappho was writing her lyrics and Aristotle was inventing all the ideas. However, that is not the case. He was born in 1836 in the Netherlands to the family of a lawyer with lots of children. Initially, his parents intended for him to become a lawyer as well, but at the age of 15 he suffered a severe mental and physical breakdown. Doctors didn't give him much time, so he was allowed to spend his remaining years on this earth drawing and painting. Being left to his own devices, he regained his health and decided to pursue the career of the artist. He studied in the Royal Academy in Antwerp, Belgium, where he gained knowledge of the early Dutch and Flemish art and won several awards. Early on, he was encouraged to depict historical accuracy in his work, a trait which would stay with him and would later become distinctive for his art. In his young years, he often destroyed his own works, if he was unhappy with them. Some said that he was a mechanical perfectionist, and it does show. He took a great care with preliminary sketches, working on the composition and the details. He began his depiction of the ancient world with Egypt, a place where so many stories began. His first paintings received acclaim among critics and artists, but one of his teachers criticized his depiction of marble. Lawrence took a serious note of that and improved his technique and went on to become the world's foremost painter of marble and variegated granite. Later, during their honeymoon with his first wife, he visited Rome, Florence, Naples and Pompeii, sites which provoked great interest in him for the ancient Greek and especially Roman Empire. The latter would become big inspiration for his work in the coming decades. He always paid a great attention to the accuracy of his depictions, consulting the experts to get architectural sites exactly right. During his travels in Italy, he bought photos of the ruins that would start his collection of archival materials, which he used for his paintings. A couple of years later, his wife died of smallpox, which left the artist unconsolable and depressed. He didn't paint for nearly four months. Luckily for him, though, his dear old sister helped around the house, basically taking on the role of a housekeeper and looking after his two daughters family and friends help geniuses to create their great work can never be attributed only to them at certain point he began suffering from certain health problems which doctors in brussels where he was living at the time could not diagnose so he was advised to go to london to get the expert's opinion there he met his second wife It was love from the first sight, although, when they married, he was already 34 and she was only 18 years old. It was still a happy marriage, or at least it was said to be. He gave her painting classes and later she would also earn a reputation as a great artist. This, and outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War, encouraged him to move to London with his sister and the kids. There were his main buyers. There he would find his home. So let's look at one of his most famous creations, the Roses of Heliogobalus of 1888. And I find it to be an absolute crime for this masterpiece to be in the private collection. Like, come on. This was my start of being completely captivated by this artist. Funnily enough, strict Victorian public profoundly enjoyed his depictions of the decadence of the late Roman Empire with all its lavishness and vices. Interesting how that is something worthy to depict the decline of morals rather than their upside. Maybe there was something cathartic about it. Or maybe common Englishmen associated themselves with the ancient Romans. After all, they were the rulers of one-fourth of the world. The sun never sets on the British Empire. The roses of Heliogobalus depicts a moment from the late Roman Empire. Heliogobalus was an emperor only for four years, and in that short period of time he managed to scar the Roman society. He was an extremely unpopular emperor, and apparently his lifestyle was so unacceptable and against the norm that his own family assassinated him. Here alma depicts one of his infamous parties. The emperor invited his guests, drink and participate in orgies and when they were hopelessly intoxicated and tired, rose petals started falling from the ceiling. First, it added a nice smell and atmosphere, but they kept falling and falling and petal hills turned into petal mountains. The guests were smothered by them. Petals started to get into their lungs and eventually they were drowned in a flower glory. It was the ultimate Roman death. Here we observe the absolute mastery of the artist's brushwork. The marble column to the right looks like we can almost touch it and feel its smooth surface with our fingers. Each petal is depicted with close precision. Fresh blossoms were delivered to the artist's studio weekly during the winter of 1887-1888. The light fabric to the left being blown by the wind and, of course, the guest being blanketed by the petals. There is no strong emotional charge in this painting, however. It isn't really trying to teach us a moral lesson, it's just there to be beautiful and to be admired. Later, Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema developed a special signature where he would put Roman numbers on his paintings under his name. All in all, there were 408 of them. This system helps with chronologically ordering his works as well as preventing fakes. He enjoyed the title of the Royal Academician as well as in 1899 he was knighted in England only the eighth artist from the continent to receive this honor. Being a good businessman he was one of the wealthiest artists in the 18th century. He actively used the successful formula of beautiful women on marble terraces overlooking the sea. As for example in Unconscious Rivals of 1893 Here we see two beautiful women in an imaginary Roman setting, both deep in thought. The title of the painting and the statue of Cupid next to them suggest a love triangle and a possible existence of a third party. Everything from marble relief to the delicate flowers and flowing fabric of the women's dresses is depicted with an incredible precision and skill. It's beautiful and really there is not much more that can be said about it. Sir Lawrence lived to see a lot of modern abstract movements originate, and he quite strongly disapproved of them. He died in 1912 at the age of 76 and was buried in the crypt of St. Paul Cathedral in London. Quite an important place to be buried in, huh? After his death, with development of all the new artistic movements of the beginning of 20th century, his art was criticized and then lost obscurity for half a century, although recently his art was rediscovered and sold for millions of dollars. What I try to say in this episode is that art is pretty. (laughs) Okay, no, not only. I just often think that we make such an enemy and a bad guy out of the academy, especially when we talk about all the modern movements. course it had a lot of problems to start with it didn't allow women a proper artistic education and it absolutely had to change but we can't just wipe it out from art history or diminish all its achievements rules are not always bad and art for the sake of art can also bring a certain value to the society there is a time and a place for it of course we can't stare at the idealized naked women and roman ruins all day The same way we can't talk about vices of the world the whole time. Liberalization is beneficial in a lot of ways, but so is keeping to the traditions. The idea of destroying absolutely everything that came before and building the new glorious world on the ruins rarely works. Maybe what I'm trying to say is appreciate classical art for what it is. idealized beauty. Contextualize it. Talk about its problematics, but also allow yourself to just enjoy it. Trace the brushstrokes. Take in the colors and textures. Spend your time talking with a work of art. Funnily enough, I realized, writing the script, that truly there is not much to be said about these paintings. They don't evoke a lot of strong emotions. It's just this idea of pleasure. At least not the ones that I chose, but yeah. So maybe there is just a perfect formula of having a skill and the meaningful message. Okay, that's enough for now, I think. We talked about the history of art academies and the movement of the academism, as well as aesthetic hedonism. We looked at the glorious work by William Adolphe Bugajo and learned about Sir Lawrence Alma-Tadema, our glorious knight with a brush. Hopefully, you will hear from me soon enough. I'll truly try to find time for my favorite hobby, geeking out about art. Sometimes just life gets in the way, I guess. And yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me and will help other people find the little Art History Podcast. Also, you can follow me on my Instagram. It's ArtRand_WithLana. underscore with Lana. There I post some updates on my content <laughs> when there are updates and just... Post about my silly life. So, yeah, for now, keep enjoying the art world, and until the next time, bye!